This is the Software and Technology Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you information, education, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. The more diversity of thought of the people working at tech companies, the better. The blockchain idea was around 91, the same idea of in the digital world, we need verifiable documents. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast today. I'm your host, Tyler Kern. The world of payments and unified commerce contains a variety of complex business processes and risk and compliance standards and so much more. And here to break down this complex landscape is Bruce Shirey. He's the Senior Vice President of Business Solutions for Amaryllis. Bruce, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome, Tyler. My pleasure. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Bruce, let's start off here. What is your definition of the market or markets specifically focused on providing payments acceptance to merchants that are not obtaining these services from the traditional financial institution or acquirer model? Well, the best markets for payment facilitators, also known as payfacts, are, are certainly providers like Amarillo's of SaaS software as a pl- service technology platforms that we help them. Uh, extend their service offerings vertically. And that's what the sponsor mm-hmm. banks and payment processors prefer is that you take on vertical markets and not take anything horizontally because it adds too much risk. So that allows them to bundle their service offerings, which includes a payment solution without the burden of traditional merchant credit underwriting. So today, the, the old school model is you fill out an app, you submit it, goes to the processor, the underwriters, they go through this litany of a couple of days to get an approval process done, and then it's a yay or nay, and then they go from there. Payment facilitation just eliminates that, it allows these guys to do quick underwriting using different forms of KYC because they are assuming all the risk. And it works for anybody in marketplaces, whether you're an ISV, a VAR, or a wholesale ISO. Absolutely, absolutely. So you mentioned payfax there, or, or payment facilitators. Can you provide unique examples of successful payfax and why they chose to pivot their business model and how it benefited them? Sure. Uh, one is kind of a household name now. It's called Shopify. It's a, they're an organization that started out just providing e-commerce software to merchants. So basically what that means, merchant signed up, they, they paid a down payment, they put a monthly fee, and they built an e-commerce store, and then they launch it. And in the early days, then you had to go find a bank that's going to sponsor you, to allow you to have a merchant account and the processor. And then I usually took an ISO to bring you to the party. And it was just kind of this ritual, and it kind of happened and happened. And Shopify, over time, uh, decided that there was more money being left on the table than they liked, so they decided to enter the payment space. And instead of connecting to all the pr- prior, they would connect to multiple gateways. And that mm-hmm. gave them access to all the processors. When Stripe came along, they went with them because Stripe was, you know, for all intents and purposes, a payback. And they were the merchant of record. So all merchants signed up on Stripe platform via Shopify. The challenge with that is that Shopify still didn't own the merchant processing revenue. Stripe did. And they only received a portion of that revenue, what they call rev share. So then a few years ago, Shopify just pivoted completely and became a fully registered payfac. And now 61% of their revenue comes from payments. So, wow. and as a payfac, you now control the entire merchant life cycle. So from the time they start the store, sell things, take the payment, receive the funds. 
they're in control of all of it. And another one that was more interesting, it's called Run Signup. And they became a payfac because they know their business and model better than anyone. And, and the challenge for them was they kind of fit in this, quote, higher risk model, which means they're taking future payments. Or think of a cruise ship. You're going to go on a cruise, you pay for a year in advance. That's considered high risk because people pay the money and then they don't go or they charge it back and creates all kinds of unnecessary risk and, and costs. So mm -hmm. run sign up says, well, this is a $50, $100 event. Nobody's charging it back. They're athletes. And it's not a year ahead. It's a month ahead or two months ahead before the race is conducted. So they just put all the controls in, manage the user experience. They built the websites for the race. People come in and say, I'm going to run a, a 5K here in some city in some state. Well, they build the website and they help promote it, market it, collect the payments. They, and then they manage the payment till the day of the race. And then they pay the race organizer, less the fee for doing it. And the beauty of their whole model is it costs you nothing except for the, the fee to collect the payment. So they do everything. It's all built into the fee. They get it when they're done with the race. They're done. That could be an annual event for that particular race organizer. He could do it every three months, every six months. So it's financially for the race organizer, it's much, much better experience. And they're controlling everything in the, in the life cycle from revenue, profitability, and they manage the, the, the runners. So he's got a great, great business model. And that is considered a vertical. So now I'm curious, how well do fintech companies really understand these models and the implications and requirements of each one of them? Well, some fintech companies clearly understand processes and the regulations and the compliance landscape, while others are solely technology focused and they tend to ignore the complex payment ecosystem that they'll be encountering. What do you mean by that? The technology providers or the and or ISOs that are out there may not fully understand the true reason or full extent why they should embrace a payback model. So they some tiptoe lightly, some just jump straight in, and then mm -hmm. there's all these side effects because either you fully understood you know what you're getting into, you were budgeted for it, or the rest of it comes as a surprise. But the market confusion between the aggregator model and a payback model still exists. And the aggregators are back to earlier comment groups the banks sponsor banks like verticals versus horizontals horizontal market is aggregation and what that means is you're going to accept payments from anything and anybody selling anything anywhere and that's just too much risk because you mm -hmm. don't know who they are you can't manage them in a vertical you understand who your merchants are coming on board and, and you you qualify them completely different other key considerations when you get into what is my true objective, well, the, the, the number one is the company must want to record all the acquiring res the revenues and the residual commissions. That's why they're doing this. They're not sharing it. They're taking the full liability. By taking full liability, you earned more of the fees. The other side is some companies feel it's necessary to have instant merchant onboarding. Uh, that's to me is not the why you do this. It, it makes sense if you're working small utilities and you got a vertical in that space, 
Why would you want instant onboarding? Because that particular person, say, renting an apartment or moving to their home, needs to have their power turned on. That would make mm -hmm. sense. <clears throat> what type of underwriting? That's That varies, and that's how good you are at it, how much you thought about it ahead of time. Most people don't understand that they will have to hire an underwriting and a compliance officer so they can actually figure out how to score these sub-accounts, sub-merchants coming on board. And then if you're ready to implement the necessary technologies, the disciplines to meet the card brand regulations, and there's a lot of regulations, so becoming a payback, you are changing your culture in your organization to make this work. That's really interesting, uh, just that, that change that has to take place. So what does the payment facilitation model offer merchants from a traditional ISO or agent model? It provides uh, several benefits for the micro businesses and, and small to medium enterprises that are looking for a frictionless experience versus opening traditional merchant accounts with the acquiring bank. So what does that really mean is the payment facilitators stepping in front of the acquiring bank saying, I'm going to manage this. I will manage limited credit verifications. I will mm -hmm. look at instant or rapid access to payment services. They can do that much quicker. Uh, they provide bundled packages trying to use software as a service applications for point of sale. Uh, then also limit or no capital expenditure on payment terminal equipment because you're running it through a SaaS platform. Uh, they can simplify the merchant discount rate to a flat rate. And within that flat rate, all the costs are absorbed by the payback. And ultimately you're creating a one-stop ex shop experience for that sub-merchant coming onto your platform. So we mentioned that this is a complex uh, landscape to navigate, and you got to know a lot about the very, you know, the, the ecosystem that uh, payments live in. So, in, in your opinion, what are the gaps that companies typically underestimate when deciding to become a PayFac uh, marketplace or a wholesale ISO? That's a good question. Uh, probably one of the bigger gaps are it's really understanding the acquirer process or brand requirements right at the outset. You should do your homework first. An example is with the ongoing reporting that's required by the banks and the card brands. That's just new to anybody becoming a payment facilitator because you have now assumed all those responsibilities where the payment processor used to do that on your behalf. And the other one is the length of time it takes to go through a full registration certification process. It is does take time. The associated costs was that from start to go live. They're, they're completely underestimate what that what that will take to become mm -hmm. a payment facilitator and to meet all the requirements. So it's they're all interrelated. You in a lot of cases that have to do what they call BYO or bring your own sponsored bank. They don't know where to look. They don't know what banks. They don't know what those banks what verticals they like. So you end up in this uh, potpourri of people out there going, well, this bank only does these type of markets. That bank does those kind of markets. This bank will take higher risk. This bank will take no risk. So there's a lot to, to learn. And picking the type of uh, technology platform that's required is really the key. It, it's really that they need to understand the technology it's required to perform all the required services within the payment facilitation world. Prior to that, payment processors performed all that work. The ISO just sold it and collected a revenue share. Now they're in front of this and they have to do all this work. So whether you're an ISO or an ISV, 
or you're a technology company and you're trying to enter this, ultimately you're going to become all three, which is a, a major cultural shift. Right, right. So, so as we talk about these gaps, do you believe that these gaps are creating a necessary or an unnecessary barrier to entry, just given the fact that there's some hurdles you got to jump through and you, there's some things you got to know and, and you have to understand? Yes and no on the gaps. Uh, I don't believe the gaps create unnecessary barrier to entry as a true payfac must be capable to perform within those strict regulations, making sure and ensuring that merchant subaccounts and consumers are protected. Mm-hmm. On the current compliance regulatory environment, it's sufficiently creating the barrier to entry. So, it's, so there you have your yes and no. It's, I think it's a natural evolution. Eventually, over time, as the market grows, it will find its own equilibrium. So, in your opinion, is there an argument for an industry-published set of baseline requirements to help with the decision-making process as far as this goes? Yes, I think that they had... If they actually produce precise guidelines, it would help potential payfacks assess the value of becoming Mm -hmm. a payfac in this model. And for their particular business environment, it will force them to understand key factors leading to those decisions, such as what are the card brand regulations and compliance rules? What are the processes that are associated with it? Advantages of key vertical markets versus horizontal. Technology requirements and related costs. You know, there's platforms you have to have and technology tool sets that you have to have to operate within a payback world. Then there's the ongoing monitoring, the KYC, and the ongoing reporting, because all that leads to annual audits. And then really understand the economics of risk and compliance and the financial liabilities that you undertake when you become a payback, because all that risk and compliance lands now in your lab. So we, we kind of talked about the Shopify example earlier. How difficult or easy is it for these unique complex commerce payment models to gain acquirer sponsorship? Becoming a payfac pay is not an easy task. Uh, companies must be able to demonstrate very solid financials. And because you have to be able to escrow monies against fraud and losses. So there's that aspect. Companies have to become experts in several fields becoming risk management, acquiring, underwriting technology, payment processing, emergent services. You have to understand that whole ecosystem to be able to support it, manage it, and operate compliantly. And it's complete, again, a cultural shift for these organizations to step into this. So I guess the question then is, why not just go with Stripe or Square or Adyen and and just be done with it at that point? As we mentioned a little bit earlier, when Shopify went with Stripe, there are issues when dealing with a Stripe or a Square or Adyen, especially if the payback wants to record its revenue and fully own the merchant contracts, which includes portability. Portability means that you can move your merchant portfolios around to different payment processor platforms based on how you want to increase your profitability based on how your model works. And it's also Mm -hmm. harder to build a strong brand value by using third-party tools because you're depending on the whims of those organizations. Let's, for example, your business changes and you need a specific feature set to be deployed on those platforms, they may or may not do this. It may take too long for them to implement because they may have to write or code to that requirement. So typically, if you have your own platform or using SaaS platforms that are out there like Amaryllis, we have the ability to modify, add, and tweak those feature sets. 
So from a technology perspective, then, should these models, you know, build, buy, partner, or form a combination of these, you know, kind of build a hybrid or, you know, what, what should they do and why? This is a question that highly depends on the size of the organization. And when I say size, that means your revenues and you have budget. I believe that building from scratch is a massive endeavor. It takes a significant amount of time and capital, and it slows down your go-to-market strategy. Mm -hmm. Opting for a white-label solution can provide very adequate branding without the burden of platform hosting, management, all the other associated personnel that required for you to do this from scratch. My experience buying or partnering or a combination thereof is a better way to get quick access to the market and avoid financial uncertainty relating to platform development and maintenance. So those are all the other cost considerations when you decide to become a payfact. And it also limits the exposure of building a technology and development team long-term because that's just another cost factor that you hadn't planned for. And, and you have to be large enough to absorb those costs and develop, develop those teams and support them. Absolutely. Absolutely. So can you elaborate on the perceived versus the real risks of these business models? Like how well acquainted are payment facilitators at really knowing the real risks of offering direct payment solutions to their customers? I believe that most payfax startups tend to focus on technology rather than looking at the model in a completely holistic way. Hmm. The, the perceived risk is also related to the capacity of onboarding merchants instantly and deliver an instant mid. This really applies to specific vertical markets. Like I mentioned earlier, utilities, customer needs their power, gas, water turned on immediately. That's where instant onboarding has some relevance. But in all likelihood, it's not really necessary. It's more specifically, you should be thinking about how am I going to run this compliantly, stay within the guardrails, follow the brand rules and regulations so I can run an efficient, cost-effective, profitable business. But unfortunately, there's bigger risk related to ongoing KYC, KYC because that's based on the type of sub-account you bring in, that merchant, what risk category they fall in. So are you going to do KYC monthly, quarterly, semi-annually, but you will do it annually for sure. There will be annual audits. There's financial monitoring of fraud, the chargebacks, portfolio performance, and compulsory reporting. All that has to happen based on you becoming a registered payfac. And those are the challenges and the the implementation, the people, the, the departments you have to put in that make this whole payfac model run like a Swiss watch. Well, this has been just a really fascinating and in-depth look at that complex world of commerce and payment models. And so, Bruce Shirey, thank you so much for joining me today and explaining a little bit more and kind of diving in and getting into the nitty-gritty of some of the pitfalls, some of the things people should look out for, and uh, just getting a little deep into the world of payment models. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Tyler. It was a pleasure. And everybody else, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. Of course, we'll be back soon with more episodes. But until then, I've been your host today, Tyler Kern. Thanks for listening.